As we prepare to hear the word of God, both read and proclaimed, let us turn again to the Lord in prayer. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Send your Holy Spirit, we pray, that we might have light, and in having light, we might see clearly, and then in seeing clearly, we might obey in faith. Through Jesus Christ, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Our scripture comes from the first epistle of John, chapter 2, verses 7 through 14, as we continue our sermon series through this first epistle of John. Verses 7 through 14, hear now the word of God. It is written, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. This past Sunday, we arrived at one of the three tests that John provides for us in his first epistle by which we can gain an assurance of salvation. We want to know how can someone know that they truly know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior? How can they know that they have truly been born again to a saving faith? And we said last week that it isn't simply because the person has said that he or she believed in Jesus. It isn't because a prayer has been repeated or worship has been attended or a church has been joined, but rather, as John states in chapter 2 and verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Keeping the commandments that we have received from God, especially as we find them demonstrated in and articulated by Jesus Christ, is one way that we can know that we know Jesus. As Paul Washer stated in one of his sermons on 1 John, the evidence of salvation is the working of God in our lives that causes us to grow in conformity to his character and in conformity to his will. We have the assurance that we have truly been born again because the things that are written in 1 John are found, at least to some degree, in our lives. 
A life that has not been changed has not been saved. So the evidence of a saving faith is that we now live lives which seek to conform to the word of God. We will seek to walk in the light. We will seek to walk in the ways of Jesus Christ, obeying his commandments. Obedience is the first test. But now, here in 1 John chapter 2, in verses 9 through 11, John is going to give us another test. John has given us a moral test. The next test John presents to us is a social test. And John does this by pointing us to one commandment in particular. How do we know that we have a saving relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ? We love the brethren. Love. How appropriate that this is our topic on this Sunday before St. Valentine's Day. Now, we understand that it's not just our vertical relationship, our relationship with God that is changed by saving faith, but it is our horizontal relationship that is changed as well. Now, I'm being intentional to use the word brethren here because even as what we read in the ESV is brother, John is using this word to refer to a specific group of people. He isn't just telling us that we are to love our siblings. And to get at what John is telling us here, I want to, for us to look at three things in this passage. First, we need to look at the character of the commandment to love. Second, we need to look at the contrast John presents to us between love and hatred. And third, we need to look at the community in which we are called to love. So first, let's look at the character of the commandment to love. John presents his social test to us in a somewhat confusing manner, doesn't he? He says in verse 7, Behold, I'm writing to you no new commandment but an old commandment. But then he turns around in verse 8 and says, at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you. Well, which is it, John? Is it an old commandment or is it a new commandment? This doesn't seem to make any sense at first glance, but it does if we push into it a bit. You see, the commandment to love is not a new commandment. God's people have had this commandment given to them for a long, long time before the coming of Christ. We find this commandment in its simplest form in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is one of the verses Jesus quoted when he was asked what was the greatest commandment. In replying, he first quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. You shall love the Lord God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. But then he added, in a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is Leviticus 19.18. And you can recall that Jesus said of these two commandments, on these two commandments depend or hang all the law and the prophets. So when we look at the Ten Commandments, what we find on the first tablet are really commandments of how to love God. And what we find on the second tablet are really commandments of how to love our neighbors. The commandment to love, then, is decidedly not a new commandment. 
And yet, when Jesus comes, he tells his disciples in John chapter 13 and verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. But what does Jesus mean by this? Because again, the commandment to love is not new. What Jesus is saying here is new about the commandment to love is that this commandment must now be interpreted in and through him. The disciples were to love as they had seen exemplified in Jesus. The commandment to love, you see, takes on new meaning, new understanding. It takes on new character in Jesus Christ. Jesus, in his life and in his sacrificial death, fills out what it means to love. As one commentator puts it, In Christ, the commandment to love is strengthened, deepened, expanded, and given a depth of meaning and understanding never seen before his coming in the incarnation. The commandment to love, therefore, is new in Jesus in several ways, as John Stott has pointed out. First, it is new in the emphasis he gave it. It's new in the emphasis he gave it. As as we've already noted, Jesus in his teaching revealed that all the law and the prophets hang upon the commandments to love God and love others. So a new emphasis is placed on love. Love is recognized as being at the heart of all that God had commanded. Love becomes the chief virtue. Second, the commandment to love is new in the quality Jesus gave it. Jesus demonstrated for us the lengths to which true love would go. Jesus instructed his disciples to love as he had loved them. And he said this after he had washed their feet, an act of humble servitude. But he also gave this instruction on the same evening that he would be betrayed and arrested. And it wasn't to be lost on the disciples that this instruction was given in the context of his impending crucifixion and death. Love is willing to lay down its life for others. This is how far the love demonstrated in Jesus Christ goes. And this is how they were to love. Jesus then provided a new quality to the commandment to love. But that wasn't all that Jesus taught about love, was it? Jesus didn't just provide a new understanding of the length to which love should go. Jesus also provided a new understanding of the extent to which love should go. As James Montgomery Boyce noted, in Christ's day, love was not new, but at the same time, there were few who would consider love to be an obligation beyond a fairly limited circle of close friends or at the widest extent, one's nation. But into this context, Jesus taught the parable of the Good Samaritan. We are to love our neighbor, but Jesus expanded the definition of what many would have considered a neighbor. We are to love not only those who love us, not only our family members, not only our friends, not only those who share the same ethnicity as us or religion as us or are citizens of the same country. Who we are to consider our neighbor for the sake of love extends beyond the bounds of ethnicity, nationality, religion, economic standing, personal relation, age. Jesus taught that those who were often despised and looked down upon, the poor, 
the alien, the destitute, women were to be loved. They were to be valued, shown respect, treated with dignity. And Jesus even taught that love was to be extended to our enemies. This was a new way to understand love in and through Jesus Christ. So for the Christian community, even though the commandment to love was nothing new, a new day had dawned in Jesus Christ. As John writes in verse 8, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And the result of this new reality was that love was not only new in its emphasis, its quality, its extent, it was also new in the degree to which it was realized. John says that love as a new commandment is true in him, meaning in Jesus Christ, and in you, the church. And as Boyce explains, in this verse, true means genuine. And the point is that the true or genuine love, like genuine righteousness, is now being seen not only in Jesus, but in those who are made alive in him as well. In this sense, what was not possible under the Old Testament dispensation is now possible for the life of Jesus, which expresses itself in love, is in his people. And in this sense, love will always be new to the Christian. You see, those who belong to Jesus Christ, who have repented of their sins, who have placed faith in Jesus, who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, have been delivered from this present evil age, as the Apostle Paul calls it in Galatians 1.4, and have even now tasted the goodness of the powers of the age to come, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 5. No longer are we dependent upon shadows. The true light, the heavenly reality has come in Jesus Christ. He is ushered in a new age in which all those who belong to him by faith are already living, at least in part, and in which his light is shining in them and through them. The church has been called out of darkness into his marvelous light to live as people of light, which means we are called to walk in the light. And what does that mean? It means that we are to walk in the ways of love as demonstrated in and through Jesus Christ, whose light is the light of love. And by the power of the Holy Spirit alive in us, we are enabled to love in ways that point to the love of God in Jesus Christ. Not perfectly, but recognizably. And so John can say without any sort of equivocation, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, I want to unpack what John says in these verses. we, We need to understand the contrast John is presenting here between love and hatred, light and darkness. But first, we shouldn't miss specifically who John is saying that we should love. You see, while we should be recognizing the extent to which we are called to love others in Jesus, while we should love broadly all those Jesus has taught us to consider our neighbor, 
John speaks here specifically of loving our brother. And brother is referring to those in the church community. This is why I've used the term brethren earlier. We shouldn't miss the significance of this specificity. Loving one another as the people of God was of utmost concern to Jesus. Right after giving his disciples this new commandment, Jesus tells them, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, we can't very well love those outside the family of God if we aren't even loving those who have become family to us through our union in Jesus Christ. If, if we aren't loving those God has loved and redeemed, we can't love our neighbors. But the church is also meant to demonstrate for the world the new reality that has been ushered in by Jesus Christ. Said differently, how we love one another gives evidence that the king of light and love is already reigning and the fullness and consummation of that reign is just around the corner. The New Testament testifies that the apostles understood the importance of love within the Christian community. It's to the church First and foremost, that the Apostle Paul exhorts in Romans 12, let love be genuine. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Love one another with brotherly affection. It's to the church, first and foremost, that the Apostle Peter instructs in 1 Peter 4, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Love was important within the church, not only because it gave glory to God, though, but also because as those who were living in the light of Christ, persecution from the world would come. And who would be there to care for those who were standing firm against the world, if not our brothers and sisters in Christ? This is what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 25 when he spoke of the one who gave him food when he was hungry, who gave him something to drink when he was thirsty, who welcomed him when he was a stranger, who clothed him when he was naked, who visited him when he was sick and in prison. We like to generalize this passage to legitimize things like prison ministries and feeding ministries, which don't get me wrong. There's absolutely nothing wrong with ministering to the hungry, the thirsty, the poor, the sick, the imprisoned. We're called to that in Christ. But Jesus in Matthew 25 is speaking specifically of those who are suffering as a result of their faith in him. He knew that his people would be persecuted. They would become impoverished as a result of boldly living out their faith and proclaiming the gospel. They would need other believers who dared to care for them when this happened. So Jesus was saying, if you're not loving your brother in Christ, your sister in Christ in tangible ways, especially in their time of need, then perhaps you don't really know me. And this is exactly what John is saying here. So having examined the character of love and with the specificity of our Christian brothers and sisters in mind, we need to now examine the contrast that John presents to us here concerning the commandment. And the reason this is important to do is because it further reveals to us whether we are actually living up to this commandment that we have found exemplified in Christ. The question is, do we pass the test of love and thus truly have saving faith? 
And John gives us a few examples, two negative and one positive to help us consider this test. The first example is negative. It's of the one who professes to be in the light, but whose actions prove otherwise. Now, earlier in chapter 2, we had the one who said he knows God, but does not keep his commandments. And that man, John said, is a liar. The truth is not in him. Here in these verses, John says that the one who says that he is in the light, but hates his brother, is still in darkness. Well, that seems pretty black and white, doesn't it? As one commentator rephrases what is being said here, if you say you are in the light, experiencing the life of God, yet you continually hate your brother, only one conclusion can be drawn. You are still in darkness. The realm of spiritual death and moral corruption, evil and wickedness, you still belong to the devil. And many might respond to all this by saying, well, I, I, don't, I don't hate anyone. I, I mean... It isn't like I go around being mean to people or getting into fights, right? But perhaps it would be helpful to remember at this point the standard of love in Christ. It isn't simply to avoid the negative, right? Even as we might think of hatred simply as an intense dislike or an open act of hostility against another, to love our brother in Christ isn't simply not to murder him. It isn't just not stealing from him. It isn't just not coveting his belongings or committing adultery with his wife. The law of love in God's king kingdom also carries a positive con connotation. It, it challenges us to consider how we are promoting life. How are we providing for the needs of those around us? How are we rejoicing with others in the blessings they have received from the Lord? How are we honoring the relationships around us and, and seeking to build them up? And we'll see this later when John in chapter 3 will say, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how can God's love abide in him? So when John speaks of hating a brother, he's speaking of any failure to love, negative or positive. H hating our brother is not simply just being openly hostile. It's also neglecting to care for one another. And while none of us loves perfectly, if we continually fail to love our brothers and sisters in Christ in tangible ways, both positively and negatively, then we are in darkness. Perhaps one example of this is the case of the importance of speaking a hard word to a brother or sister who is caught in some form of sin. And now from the world's perspective, loving someone means letting him or her do what brings pleasure and feels right, even if it's momentary and has harmful consequences. That's actually a hateful thing though, isn't it? To, to let someone continue down a path of destruction? I, I would not be a loving father if I let my children inject heroin into their veins, right? It's a clear example of how many in the world claim to live in the light, claim to be enlightened, and yet hate those around them and prove themselves to be in the darkness. Should never be the case within the church community though we should speak truth and love to one another this is how we love one another in tangible ways we don't turn a blind eye to sin 
John will now move from a negative example to a positive example. So we continue to consider this test of love. In verse 10, John states, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Again, this seems pretty straightforward. We prove that we are children of light when we love one another. But look at what John does here. He tells us that loving others not only reveals that we are in the light, but it also contributes toward the light that we already abide in. We will not stumble. We see clearly. As James Montgomery Boyce explains, the one who walks in the light has more light day by day. Well, this is true, isn't it? The the one who is committed to loving others will find their love continually growing in consistency and in intensity. That person's love will develop and mature, leading to broader and bigger acts of love. We grow in love. But the reverse of this is also true, as John will go on to tell us with his final negative example in verse 11, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John tells us that there are several truths about those who fail to love their brother. First, they are in darkness, meaning they live in spiritual death. Second, they walk in darkness, which is adding to the idea of continuing action. They aren't, in other words, just lacking in knowledge of God, but their their lives, their actions will be characterized by darkness. They live in darkness and they walk in darkness. And finally, even though they continued in their darkened walk, they do so without any knowledge of a goal. So this is the sad reality. Those who dwell in darkness don't even know that they're in darkness. They're just wandering aimlessly and are always moving in a negative direction. So just as the one walking in the light of love grows increasingly more loving, the one walking in darkness grows increasingly more darkened. The reality is that we have no hope except in God, who is able to give sight to the blind and direct the sinner's feet in the paths of righteousness. And praise be to God that he has delivered us from the darkness. He has opened our eyes that we might see. He has illumined our path that we might walk in his ways. And we need to be careful not to neglect his grace. And yet, as John has contrasted light and darkness, love and hatred, in such black and white terms, we we might wonder if we are in darkness and don't even know it. As John Stott says about how John presents these things to us, the contrast is stark and absolute. Love and hatred are set in opposition to one another with no alternative. There is no twilight. So perhaps recognizing that we don't love perfectly, we might question if we really do love others in a way that provides us with any sense of assurance of our salvation. Love, after all, is not an easy thing, is it? Loving others, even in the Christian community, is difficult. It's very difficult. Each of us is a sinner. And we do things sometimes that annoy one another at best and that hurt each other at worst. Whether each of us wants to admit it or not, we are hard to love sometimes. 
And, and we have trouble loving others because of that. And perhaps this is why John seems to so abruptly end the discussion on this social test and, and move to what seems to be a digression. And this brings us to our third and final point. We've examined the character of love, the contrast of love and hatred. Now we need to look at the nature of the community in which we are called to live out this commandment. We find this in verses 12 through 14. And although this might seem to be a digression from the general flow of thought we have found so far in John's letter, we need to understand what John is doing here. John, in providing a stark contrast does not mean, as Stott declares, to give his readers the impression that he thinks that they are in darkness or that he doubts the reality of their Christian faith. His purpose in writing is as much to confirm the right assurance of genuine Christians as it is to rob the counterfeit of their false assurance. We need to remember that John's main audience here is the church, even as he speaks against false teachers. And John doesn't intend for true Christians to lump themselves in with these false teachers. He intends for those to whom he is writing to have a strong assurance. So these few verses here are very intentionally written to remind his audience of a few truths, namely who they are, and the resources that God has graciously provided them as they seek to live out the commandments he has given to them and to have assurance. So notice what John does here as he speaks to the church community in three ways, as little children, as fathers, and as young men. Now, these categories are probably not as much about biological factors as they are about spiritual ones. This isn't about age or parenthood as much as it is that John has divided up the church into those who are mature in their faith, those he calls fathers, and those who are just starting out, those he calls young men. I wish we could spend a lot more time here, but I'm going to be brief. Here's what we need to see. Everyone in the church needs to understand themselves to be a little child. And so this is where John begins. This is who we are in God's kingdom. No one enters into the kingdom except like a child. And there are two truths that John wants to impress on all who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. First, our sins are forgiven. And second, in coming to faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the Spirit of God. And in receiving the Spirit, we are able to cry out to God as Abba, Father. We know God as our Father. Now, we should not think lightly on either one of these truths. They are the basis for our ability to love others. We have been accepted by God. He has forgiven our sins. He has adopted us as his children. He is a father who desires to give us the desires of our hearts, which bring him glory. There's nothing more that God would like to help us to do than to love each other as we have been loved by him in Jesus Christ. But next, John speaks to the fathers, those who are mature in their faith. And here is their encouragement. Twice he's going to tell them this. They have come to know the one who is from the beginning. This is pointing to the result of years of faithful discipleship. What does one gain from proving again and again throughout life God's faithfulness? 
proving again and again that God is good, proving again and again that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What is gained is a deep trust in God. What is gained is a deep, intimate knowledge of God as our Father. What is gained is wisdom in following after the Lord. And if we are going to be the people God has called us to be, then we need those in the church who know these things and who remind us of these things. John also speaks to the young men, those who are just starting out in their faith. And those of you who are a little further along, can you remember when you first came to faith in Jesus Christ? Can you remember the the fiery passion you had for the Lord, the intensity of your faith, the devotion to the Lord and his word, how you just wanted to spend hours reading God's word and, and praying, learning more and more about the Lord? And listen to what John says to them. You are strong. The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. He says this last piece twice. The church needs these who are young in the faith as well. We need those who have strength to stand firm in the faith, to to face every challenge with vigor, who, who know that they are more than victors in Christ and so will not let Satan get the better of them. We need those who know these things and who will remind us of these things, don't we? And here's the point. We'll close with this. God has laid a mighty calling on us to obey his commandments and to love one another. And our desire to love each other earnestly, our ability to love each other with a brotherly affection will give evidence of our salvation even as it gives glory to God. But here's what we need to understand. We don't do this by our own strength. We have Jesus Christ who is our propitiation and our advocate before the Father who is encouraging us. We have the Spirit who enables us to love as God has loved us in Jesus. And brothers and sisters, we have the church. We have the church which God has uniquely designed not only to demonstrate his love to the world, but in which our love for one another is built up and strengthened and perfected as we lean upon each other. And this is a church we should desire to be and strive to be at Covenant, a church in which the love of God is seen and experienced, a church in which it is understood that we need one another if our love is going to be built up, and in which we seek to build each other up in love as we give of ourselves, our gifts, our wisdom, our service. May God make it so. May assurance be enjoyed by all, and may God be glorified in us and through us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the love that we have seen in your Son, Jesus Christ, who came, Lord, and counted it all joy to go to the cross, to endure the shame, to endure the pain, that he might bring forgiveness of sins, that he might bring us the reality of new life in him. And Lord, may we look to the cross in these coming weeks. May we find encouragement there. May we find forgiveness there. Lord, may we find an example of what it looks like to love. Lord, may we seek to live that out in our lives, giving glory to you. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.
In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe. 